Axu here. I'm Tim. Uh, today we're going to have on a special guest. Uh, this is a brand new series called Understanding the Trump Voter. Today we have on David. Uh, hi, David. Hey, Tim. Hi, Dan. Hey, welcome, David. Uh, so David is a uh, Trump voter. He's voted for Trump in the past. And uh, our reason for inviting David onto the show, uh, this podcast, is to truly understand why people do vote for Donald Trump, uh, why they continue to support him in spite of his recent controversies, um, and what those Trump voters think uh, Democrats could possibly have to offer them or how they could be more appealing to Trump voters in the future. Uh, and this is not to legitimize the Trump voter or to spread their message, but rather to seek to understand what motivates a person to support the other side uh, of what some people support uh, so that Democrats can learn from those voters and possibly even win them over in the next election. Uh, and just to really, it's best to understand every side of a debate. Uh, it strengthens your own opinions, uh, possibly, because we should always let the best evidence and the best argument win. And you can't do that if you don't hear the other arguments and the other evidence. Um, so I'd like to invite David onto the show uh, because he's a well level headed man uh, who can explain his positions well without devolving into uh, uh, chaos and and uh, partisan talking points. So, uh, Dave, thank you for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And so, first of all, uh, so you're the first in our series of understanding the Trump voter. And so I want to start mm -hmm. first with uh, what drove you to Donald Trump in the very first place? Maybe that's 2015. We're going back to 2016. But when did you start? Were you a conservative before or did mm -hmm. Donald Trump make you a conservative? So, uh, Tim, you and I knew each other in high school, and like a lot of people, I was pretty liberal in high school. I was socially liberal and fiscally didn't know too much. Um, I still consider myself socially liberal to moderate, but um, I kind of started out bad in high school, and then uh, I went to college, and I got my first internship where um, I got, you know, I was, I was getting paid a real wage, and it was exciting, and I look at my first paycheck, and I see about... 70% of what I actually was making on that paycheck and I called my mom and I got really confused and I'm like how come there's you know like like how come uh, how come all the money that I was that I'm making wasn't there and then my mom told me about you know and so that was the first time I experienced income taxes and of course that you know that's much more of a cute story about you know the conservative aversion to income taxes but I was yes, it's so, the, what, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the common Mark Twain quote is that yep. if you're young and a conservative, you have no heart. And if you're old and a liberal, you have no brain. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and so that follows along those lines. But continue. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. So um, at that point in time, I mean, I, I still consider myself liberal to moderate. Um, I didn't vote in, in that year's midterms. Um, so the the first election I voted in was 2016. I barely missed the cutoff for 2012. Um, but yeah, so I just started to kind of look more into issues and start to be a bit more political. Um, and then I, so I got really more into it during the, um, the, the, the during the, the, the Republican primaries, I'd say. So I remember watching that first primary with my with my friends who, they were a bit more conservative, I was a bit more liberal. We got into some minor arguments, but it was never anything too major. I, I consider myself probably a moderator undecided at that point. And I watched the first debate with uh, Trump and Carson and that whole 
you know, crowded stage. And I remember I, I was probably off put by, by Trump at first. He seemed brash and not um, well-spoken. Uh, he was definitely a little bit off-putting. But I continued to watch it. Um, at that point, I really started to like Rand Paul. Um, a lot of my friends were big into Rand Paul, and I started researching more about his positions. He was a lot more libertarian-minded. He was probably the biggest realistic voice of libertarianism in the modern political debate from a major party. So um, I'd say during the beginning part of the Republican primary, I definitely was on the Rand vote. And if I were to have had my say, um, I would have wanted Rand Paul uh, to probably have been the Republican nominee that year. Because I started to just sort of look more into politics and fiscal policy. And I mean, I think that Rand Paul's fiscal conservatism is probably the most appealing thing to me, as well as mixed with his more libertarian um, social, you know, status. Uh, he's, he's not a pure libertarian, but he's definitely more of a, you know, libertarian in the mind of I, if, if, if what you're doing isn't bothering me, then I won't bother you type thing. So I'd probably nowadays call myself a libertarian, um, either conservative or libertarian, somewhere between the two. But Rand Paul was probably the the biggest voice that resonated with me. And of course, he dropped out early. So I kind of liked Ted Cruz and, and I liked Trump. Um, they were kind of the two ones that were promoting actual fiscal policies. Uh, Ted Cruz was a bit more of the um, religious right, whereas Trump seemed a bit to be a bit more of a moderate who, um, you know, would maybe implement fiscal policies. I don't know. He was, he, he really was kind of just a giant question mark. Um, right. So then, you know, so so Trump, Trump won the primary, and at that point, I, I, I was kind of on the Trump train. Um, he seemed, I mean, he, he, I still to this day think he is a moderate on policy. Um, he's not a an, an ideological person. He's very pragmatic, which I always appreciate in politicians. Um, and yeah, so when it was between Trump and Clinton, and so now moving to the general, it was, I mean, it was... It, no, very few people in 2016 voted for a candidate. Many people voted against the candidate. Yeah, some um, political polling <laughs> uh, said that it was about 50% on both sides. 50% of Clinton voters were voting for her and against her, and the yeah. same was true for Trump. Right. Yeah, and um, I think probably, I mean, I... I really didn't mind Clinton too much. I preferred Clinton to Bernie. Um, I think I think Bernie Sanders is the most genuine politician out there. I think him and Rand are the two most genuine out there. But he's just way too fiscally to the left for me. Um, I don't believe in a lot of the tenets of socialism and a lot of the points being parroted by his platform. So, I mean, Clinton was, was a moderate, was basically just a less charismatic Obama. So I wasn't innately against supporting her. The biggest reason why I liked Trump over Clinton was because Trump was the peace candidate, whereas Clinton was the hawk candidate, which is a very crazy thing to think about. I mean, at least, at least 2008 Obama was at least campaigned on being a bit more of the anti-war candidate. He campaigned on closing Guantanamo, he campaigned on no more wars for oil. But then, of course, he gets into office, and we see a lot of the same when it comes to foreign policy. We see the regime change in Libya, him promote, you know, I guess that wasn't him per se, but, you know, like, it it, it was more or less the same of the kind of quote-unquote neocon nation-building type thing. And Trump was to the left of Clinton on that. Um, I, I believe to this day we should have productive conversations with Russia and with North Korea and, and with and with Iran, too. I think that 
Um, I mean, we have two pro-war parties in Washington right now. The, the, the left used to be the anti-war party, which was their, the, 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 that was their appeal, and they've kind of lost that to the point where it's, well, if we have two pro-war parties and Trump is at least kind of the wild card to where he says he, you know, doesn't want to start new wars in the, in the Middle East and he doesn't want to topple regimes, um, and he, I mean, he was, that, that was probably the biggest factor. It was the fact that he was going to be to the left of Clinton on foreign policy. He was going to be more of the dove candidate who talked about, who talked to leaders and didn't try to promote as much wars. And then also just his general fiscal conservatism, that he would, he was a Republican at the end of the day, and you would have been a Republican Congress if he won. So it would, it would have been a Republican platform with like a wild card on some of the more executive stuff. So yeah, Trump's. Yep, go on. So in the in the the war uh, aspect, so you went from thinking primarily as a, a fiscal position to looking at how they were on foreign issues, it yep. seems. Um, and so uh, obviously during the campaign, I mean, tr- Donald Trump was antagonistic to North Korea. Mm-hmm. And did you see that as jarring with your perspective on the matter? I mean, he was he was um, threatening North Korea, and did you think? I mean, of right. course, you you could argue Democrats weren't making progress with North Korea. Um, there were no talks really going on. Uh, there were starting to be provocations of nuclear tests, and mm-hmm. um, and with Russia, there was not really great talks going on. Uh, but at least with Iran, there was a deal already right. established, right. and so Donald Trump came in here and starts provoking North Korea and says that he's going to rip up the Iran deal. Right, How do right. you square that with him not being in, uh, pro-war? Sure, sure. So, um, it, I mean, it's, it's very interesting to analyze Donald Trump's actions and what he says, because a lot of it can be misconstrued. His talking style is one that can be easily misunderstood because he's basically a salesman. He's, he's, he's a genius self-marketer in that way, right? So what he what he says, I mean, he basically was he was basically running as Reagan 2.0. He was he was enacting the Reagan madman approach, which is, I mean, from my limited understanding of politics, it was the um, you know an outsider, someone who is actually crazy enough to push the button to blow up the whole world to where other leaders think, oh geez, maybe we should listen to this guy. Um, so yeah, he, I mean, he said, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I believe he said on the campaign trail that he said that he would talk to anybody and he would make deals with anybody. And I think that was his general message was that the U.S. was going to be, was going to be promoting from a position of strength. It was going to be negotiating using these, this kind of madman approach, right? But at the end of the day, it was going to be a bit more of a turn to isolationism. And I'll be honest, I was focused mainly, I mean, very few people saw the North Korea thing coming. It was mainly about Middle East policy. It mainly was about Syria and the no-go zone. Do you shoot down planes or the general, you know, um, regime building mentality? Um, So in that sense, when you looked at Trump as a, you know, on the campaign, he was one of a, of a more of an isolationist. One of, yes, also, um, so it's like being an isolationist is not... Because that doesn't mean that you also can't be a part of the Reagan madman approach, right? It's just the tactics that you use to be an isolationist position. Like going, like his approaches of being having aggressive rhetoric, is not inherently being pro-war. It could just be the madman approach. So, 
but uh, then not, he not, used, not an expert on foreign policy. Go ahead. Yes, but uh, as if you are an isolationist and you see him, you know, ripping up the Iran deal right. and uh, leaving the Paris Climate Accord and uh, just testing the United Nations and possibly threatening leaders of the United Nations, do you see that as the right direction to go? I mean, you might say in general you're an isolationist, but right, right. do you think in those instances the right thing to do would be international cooperation? Right. So, yeah, um, when you first asked this question, it was kind of tracing my thought process leading up to the election. So mm -hmm. I was trying to think of myself as candidate Trump. Of course, President Trump right. is different than candidate Trump, like all other things. So now yeah. jumping to President Trump. I guess Canada Trump did say he was going to rip up the Iran deal. Um, I, I, I definitely say I don't support the ripping up of the Iran deal. Um, I think that Trump is now just influenced by the pro-Jerusalem, you know, lobby. And so that's kind of his influence on that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, in my ideal world, I would like my my peace candidate in office to promote talks with North Korea, promote talks with Russia and promote, you know, and do the Iran deal if it was something that actually would be able to be those three categories for, um, like, the uh, whatever it's called, where you um, you basically get rid of all the nuclear material, and it's, you can, like, um, sub substantiate. Yep, yep. There, 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 there are those, like, three categories, whatever it is. Um, but, yeah, so I, I guess, I, guess I, I, would, I would say Trump shouldn't have ripped up the Iran deal, unless he was trying to implement a better Iran deal. But as we're seeing, it's now more of just a kind of way to provoke yeah. Iran. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I'd be and against even, that, but go ahead. I mean, and in Syria, I mean, there hasn't been a whole lot of movement, but when they did, when there was the evidentially based uh, chemical attack right, on right. Syria's own people, Trump did make the more aggressive move to uh, attack Syria in a very limited sure, way. Sure. Did you support that effort or no? Yeah, I think that that's the kind of realist in me. Somebody like Rand Paul or a pure libertarian, when the gas attacks happened, would just say, okay, we condemn this and that's it. Somebody who was a total, you know, quote unquote, neocon war hawk would put boots on the ground, try to overthrow Assad, and that, that's, right. you know, that's bad. So I, I think the Trump response was kind of that Jim Mattis response, which is that sort of like pragmatic, you know, approach to where we drew a red line in the sand, we want to keep our word. Um, and we're going to say no chemical weapons, but at the same, we're not going to, in the same breath, say Assad must go. And that, and that, that's been the best part about President Trump when it comes to foreign policy. It hasn't been an Assad must must go thing. Even even when he, he even when he worries me by bringing John Bolton onto the you know onto the cabinet, it's still there's still no Assad must go um, talks. So. That, in my opinion, was a measured response because it said no chemical weapons. We are strong on that, but it's not a let's topple a regime and create a vacuum just so we can go have more perpetual war. And yeah, I think I'll actually agree with you here that Trump in his war uh, tactics has been very much like an Obama in practice in mm -hmm. that Obama played it as, I mean, he talked more as a liberal in the sense of uh, classical liberalism, defending human rights and all that. Right. Uh, but at many times, Obama was a liberal realist where it was about human rights, but he wouldn't go and topple a regime uh, just because they did something wrong. I mean, we just you might we might say that Democrats do that and or 
both parties have been doing that the past few decades, but he left Syria most, mostly alone. And he wasn't really in charge of the Libya overthrow. Uh, so well, his his um his administration was a, was a you know was in charge of that and I mean yeah like Libya is complicated and I'm probably not enough right. to you know enough Libya to talk fully about it but I mean if if Obama and we don't we don't have to get too much into this but if Obama right. really was somebody who didn't believe in nation building Gaddafi probably would still be in power you know it, it was yeah I mean the Arab Spring is really complicated but. It's right. one of those things where, I mean, if, if, if like, I, I think that if we really had somebody in power who was a non-interventionist, a non-regime toppling person, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have had all the pressure that we put on to overthrow Gaddafi. I mean, you see, and, and, and this isn't even just on the president. This is the whole war beating drums of Congress, you know, that's mm-hmm. always, you know, there's John McCain yeah. saying, you know, um, uh, this, um, Hussein is gone, Gaddafi is next. You know, like right. things like that. So, right. The the uh, and um the problem of war in Washington is unfortunately a bipartisan you know agreement, and that's why I said we we have two pro war parties. Right. Right. Um. Now I think the more interesting maybe aspect and more uh, pertinent to many people's lives, maybe many listeners' lives, is the the domestic policy and the fiscal mm-hmm. policy that you alluded sure, to sure. earlier. Um. And so you had said you went into supporting Trump and, and the Republican Party is fiscally conservative, which typically means lower taxation, lower spending, a smaller government, um, and not, not giant socially, but also yeah, not giant deficits. <laughs> and so that's what led you to Trump. And so do you sure. think he is uh, achieving most of those financially conservative goals? Yeah, um, I think that in general, Republicans and it, it, it's, it's always sad to watch the, you know, uh, last six years of the Obama administration, the Republicans always hound him on, on the deficit, which is something I believe strongly in. I think that too high of a debt to GDP ratio is bad for the economic health in the U.S. And I think that we really need to take seriously our deficit. And that's something where the Republicans really get people like me on board because they're they're the ones that are going to, you know, cut the deficit and they're going to make the, you know, like are going to gradually decrease the debt and are going to have, you know, surpluses and are going to get, get their spending in order. And then sadly, they get into office and the spending just goes to different places. Um, so and, and in general, the reason why I vote Republican in, in general, of course, I'm always open to my mind to voting for whoever in each election. But in general, I basically have two options in front of me. I have one party that I know is not going to take the deficit seriously, and I have another party that might take the deficit seriously. I mean, Rand Paul introduced that penny plan, um, which got, I think, 46 votes. It got votes in the 40s. So it was possible that an action, uh, the penny plan was that um, plan that would basically cause sweeping changes to a lot of entitlement programs, a lot of different you know, basically all across the board cuts that would actually balance our budget to a healthy level of debt over the next, I think, five years. So it was an actual plan put up by Republicans, supported by 40 some odd Republicans that could have almost made it. If, I mean, if, he had, if it had the support of Mitch McConnell, if Mitch McConnell was actually a fiscal conservative in a lot of ways, then that would have been there. So, like, Republicans get close to actually managing the debt and the deficit, even though they unfortunately have not, which is to my dismay. Um, and so... And how do you square that? I mean, I haven't been alive for many decades of uh, Democratic 
congressional control. But how do you square that with the fact that deficits did decrease 66 percent under President Obama? Do you credit that to the mostly the most of the years being under Republican congressional control? Well, so which which years did the deficit decrease? Was that? I mean, because I mean, they they, they 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 went up really high in 2008, right? And then they kind of gradually right. trickled down. Right, and so they, uh, I, I believe they went from uh, in 2009, it was around 1.2 trillion dollars approximately at the height of the financial crisis, and then uh, by I believe it was 2015, we were around 400 billion. So that's about two thirds percent decrease, uh, and then as the, the last uh, year or so, it did tick back up into the five or six hundred right, billion. Right. Uh, and so do you obviously we were coming out of a financial crisis. There's lots of other causes right, here. Right. Um, but would you say that fits the mold or because it was after a financial crisis, it's really an exception? I mean, yeah, I'd probably push back against. Um, the way that you that you described that just I mean and we don't I don't want to get into you know to a debate or anything but there's that saying that you can make stats say anything you want so yeah saying that the deficit went down is the like the very much the political spin way of discussing the actualities of the 2008 financial crisis versus the deficit in the years past because I mean the overall deficit to GDP ratio was like in the double like tens percentage in the first couple years of the Obama administration. And then it got down to like, I think six or 7%, which is then around the Trump Trump level in the first year. So, I mean, it's to say that deficits were getting cut is a little misleading because it wasn't fixing the root problem of actually getting them cut to levels that's sustainable for having our overall debt be within the appropriate range for the debt to GDP ratio. Well, so I, I mean, and even, if we're not just talking about debt to GDP ratio, but the fact that we already have deficits, we already have so much debt that we're paying interest on. And that's the problem. If, if we're not running surpluses, then we're only worsening the problem of the interest we're yep. going to have yep. to pay on this debt. Well, so, yeah, the, and the, the debt to GDP. So, and, and you know, you, you major in economics. I just kind of study it. So feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but. In general, the you're, you're right that um, it, it really is about getting the overall debt in control. But there, it's it's more it's kind of just like you don't see a lot of talk about debt to GDP ratio on the liberal side of things. It's yes, the deficit is going down, but it still is leading to the main problem, and the, the overall debt is going up. Whereas you at least see people on the right side of the aisle, like the political right side of the aisle like Rand Paul, promoting plans that will actually get that debt to a sustainable level. Um, so, yeah, it's, and, go ahead. I and mean, I think, I think the, yeah. <laughs> no, you, um, you go. It's hard. To I, keep, I believe yeah. I'm just uh, I'm thinking that I'm surmising that the conservative approach is to uh, we see that there's a, a ba- an out of balance of spending to revenue and so the mm-hmm. fix is then to lower the spending. And I think the Democrats' uh, main issue is to then possibly their response is to not really decrease the spending, but to increase, increase the, the revenue. revenue. And then and the real conservatives, like, you know, are the ones that are saying we need to decrease spending and increase revenue. And those are that's what people like Rand Paul are saying. That's what 
the actual fiscal conservative answer is. And that's the problem, is that the Republican Party is not the fiscally conservative party. They just show hints of it every now and then. So they, it gets me excited. And I see people like Rand Paul who promote actual fiscal conservatism. So we need, I, I, I mean, I, I, I vote Republican because it's my job to promote people like Rand Paul in the party so we can actually have a fiscal conservative in office for once. Um, so yeah, it, it's, right. And so uh, I think what gets many people uh, is that life isn't just about money. It's not just mm-hmm. about the fiscals. It's about their human rights, their uh, pursuit of mm-hmm. happiness. Uh, you know, it's not just having financial stability in life. And so I think many people are are liberal uh, because of the, the social issues. Sure. Uh, yeah, and that that might they might say, you know, I don't understand the ins and outs of the economics. And, and I, I have a degree in economics and I, right. uh, I say that it's, it's can very, very confusing and uh, lots of data can be misleading. And especially when Americans are kept at work for longer and longer hours and are kept with more responsibilities and childcare and trying to make ends meet, they don't have a lot of time to give uh, to being informed on the, the data and the right. economic right. issues. Uh, but the social issues is maybe what leads them uh, to quicker shortcuts to say, uh, this is the right candidate, this is the right party because they share my social values. And so uh, I would ask you, so then, uh, I, as a mostly a libertarian, I would say that you're, you would probably say, you know, let a person live how they wish to live, whether that's with gay rights or abortion or I'm not sure exactly on each of the issues, but uh, if the approach is to let people live how they wish to live, do you see that? Uh, I mean, it seems that both major parties in the United States are kind of far from that position because one party says to prohibit and one party says to mandate uh, or right. to let those things happen. Uh, just it may be in a more forceful way than a libertarian maybe would, but I think that when it comes down to the legalities of it, you either let it happen or you don't. Uh, and so as the libertarian, do you more than align with the Democratic Party and do those issues, are those issues trumped by your other uh, positions like fiscal policy sure, or sure. Uh, foreign Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm definitely a big supporter of gay marriage. I remember that was probably the I, I think even in high school that that's when that debate was kind of happening full fledged. And I and I still am very much in support of gay marriage. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that if gay marriage weren't currently legal, based off the Supreme Court ruling, um, it would probably be a lot harder for me to reconcile voting um, Republican. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely am um, a libertarian on social issues, like you said. Um, and, and there, and there's an important distinction to that of, do I personally, you know, accept these issues as compared to on a government level? And I mean, in the case of gay marriage, the answer is both on the policy level and on the personal level. And on, on many other issues, the policy level is almost always live and let live. And then the personal level, you know, gets to be a little bit, um, a little bit different in that. So yeah, it's, um, I guess the way I look at it is that the, I mean, the gay marriage debate is, pretty much over. It's legal based off the Supreme Court case. Um, and then, uh, I mean, abortion is just a hot button issue that we, we probably shouldn't get into. 
Um, no, but I, I do ask on uh, something sure. like gay marriage. While gay marriage, through the Supreme Court case Obergefell v. Hodges, yep. is mostly a settled law, and it would take a lot of Supreme Court will to really overturn it, and they very well could with their new 5-4 yep. conservative yep. majority, uh, but it's very unlikely. But there are still many open questions uh, legally for the gay community. Uh, federal p- protections are absent from textual law. There are no uh, rights to protect a gay person or a trans person. Uh, anything based on sexual identity or sexual uh, orientation to be fired from a job or to be denied housing, mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't exist at the federal level. So uh, if you think those issues are important enough to protect, do you say that we just need to elect more libertarians or uh, or more liberals? Or do you think that it's okay to elect someone like a Donald Trump that is putting more conservative justices on the Supreme Court that might actually vote to prohibit such things? Well, so two things can be true at the same time. You can support gay marriage and believe that it should be legal, and you can view that Supreme Court case of um, Obergefell as, you know, not being a textual interpretation of the Constitution and something that probably shouldn't have happened, right? So you can. You can, right. And that's probably where I probably would fall in line. Um, I'll I'll be honest, in the election, I wasn't too, I didn't know too much about um, judicial law, and I, I find it really fascinating right now. I just kind of, it's kind of been the main political thing I've been researching a lot of. But yeah, I guess I would fall in the line of I support gay marriage, but there is not, to my knowledge, and I'm not a lawyer or anything, but I don't see the wording to make gay marriage legal based off of interstate commerce. So I tend to side more with the textualist approach to the law. So I probably would be in favor, uh, and also from a social standpoint, by, by, like, so let's just say for the sake of argument that that court case gets um, overturned, right? That would probably be a good thing in general for our country because there were a lot of gay rights activists that were saying that court case stopped the debate that was going on in the country, gave everyone a cop-out. That it was, it was, I mean, if you, if you remember the whole gay marriage debate, it was states were making it legal and it was a big discussion. Everyone was talking about, oh, is this a good thing? Do we want this? And we were changing minds and we were getting people to think beyond their own prejudices. And then the court case comes along and makes a law out of an interstate commerce law. And then now the debate uh, stops. I, that's an interesting argument. I haven't really mm-hmm. heard it before. Uh, I will push back, though. It's not the, the case uh, opinion was not based on the Commerce Clause. It's based on the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, which is not the Commerce Clause. Uh, so right. it is okay. saying that, that You're better at on politics than me. I studied law as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's that all people must be treated equally under the law, which leaves a lot of ambiguity right. for what, how do they get treated equally? Because, of course, some people will argue that, well, if gay marriage is illegal, uh, well, a straight person can't get married to the same sex. But we obviously know that's de facto discrimination. Uh, it's it's discriminating against a gay person to get married to the person that they wish to, that they're attracted to. It doesn't really discriminate against a same uh, a straight person. Uh, so that's just how that court case unfolded. Uh, yeah, but I, 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 from the end, I've heard that argument. And I, I, again, I don't want to get into a debate with you, but the, the counter argument to that I've heard is that 
you know, you you have a clear-cut case, of course, when it comes to segregation because your race is an intrinsic value to you. But being gay is not intrinsic to getting married. You can be a gay person who doesn't get married. You can be a straight person that doesn't get married. So the whole process of discriminating, it's, and I, I could be wrong on this again, but discriminating based off of immutable characteristics is illegal, but it's kind of a legal weird zone for discriminating based off of actions that you want um, or, you know, protect like certain statuses that you want within the federal government type thing. It, it does. It just depends on the, the type of issue, because with segregation, that that is the interference with commerce is right. that uh, public accommodation law is all about that a person has a right to engage in commerce. And so that's how you get into that. It's a different question than gay marriage. But uh, back on the larger point, I would say sure. is that if if you view, uh, I mean, now Donald Trump isn't explicitly anti-gay, um, but he's made certain moves um, that are anti-gay. He's, he's ban- banned all domestic partnerships from diplomats, foreign diplomats last week, um, which mm-hmm. is, of course, it, it hurts same sec- uh, straight couples as well, because if they have a domestic partnership, technically they cannot be allowed in the country, um, but it's more so affecting gay people. So more along the lines of that de facto discrimination. Can gay, can, um, um, can, can gay people get domestic partnerships? I thought that gay people, it's legally, the def- legal definition is married, not domestic partnership. Uh, in in other countries, you oh, can other be... Oh, other countries, if it's married. Right. It depends on... So if, if a gay person wants to get... If a foreign diplomat wants to be married today in the United States, they can do that and they can stay. It's just that they would be then having to get married Right. The United States would not honor that domestic partnership from another country. So is isn't, that, isn't that just because the U.S. doesn't have a concept of domestic partnership? So uh, we've had civil unions in the in the United States. Is that, is it's, that, is that, and it's is not that on the federal level or no? Uh, well, it's not necessarily a legal term in the sense of it's a practical mm-hmm. term. A domestic partner right. is someone you're living with, uh, just just you're living with. It's not a legal contract. Um, and so the federal government has said that someone you're living with but not married to is not allowed, uh, that, that kind of relationship will not be allowed to, to be had by foreign diplomats. Uh, that's just one issue. There are many other issues where liberals and, and, and even many Republicans find Donald Trump at fault socially. There are many instances of him making racist comments or arguably racist comments um, and of course, I don't like to get into, you know, throwing those labels around lightly because they're not right. light, light labels. Um, I like to use them when they're only evidentially clear. Uh, but have you seen Donald Trump make controversial opinions to certain groups of people throughout the past campaign and current presidency? Yeah. Do you um, think he's I've... made controversial comments? He's probably made controversial comments in the last hour when we've been, when we've been talking. Um, uh, one of my one of my favorite political um, commentators described it pretty well, where he said that Trump is a hammer. Sometimes he hits a nail, and sometimes he hits a baby. So he's a he's a um, double-edged sword. You know, he's somebody who will just. I mean, when you listen to him speak in person or on you know um, you know on, on like the news, whenever you watch him, like. 
he's somebody who speaks in, you know, great, like, imagery. He speaks with, like, he's a self-marketer. He uses exaggerations a lot. So it's, it's something where um, it's, he sometimes says things that are insensitive and can be interpreted as bad. And sometimes he's just kind of spot on with his language he used that perfectly describes the type of situation. So, yeah, um, he definitely has said things that have been controversial. Um, I, I tend to look at it and I'm not I'm, I'm not trying to do some giant mental gymnastics about how to justify this. But I, I guess I would just say the first thing I do is I look at it in the context of the way that he talks, because you can take a quote out of context and it'll seem a lot worse. And then you then you see him at a rally because, I mean, I, I've seen him at rallies and like he just messes around with the crowd and sometimes just is joking around and saying anti-politically correct things just for the sake of it to rile people up. But um, so then once I take all that into account and I try to rationalize it, you know, like I, I will see him saying some comments and that are, you know, insensitive. And that probably isn't the best thing for him to be saying. And when he says things that are bad, you know, I'd like to think that I call him out on that, you know, just because I support his policies and I support his general governance doesn't mean I need to support everything that he says, which if the, I mean, I, I don't think any conservative out there who is a pro-Trump person supports everything that he says. And Does so, that make sense? And so many people will say that many liberals might criticize you as saying that you have looked past his sexual assault comments. Sure, sure. You've looked past his violence on both sides comment about white nationalism. Uh, you've looked past uh, his criticism of Dr. Ford and her sexual assault uh, story or um, allegation last week. And so how do you say, do you say that you do look past them? Are you saying that those are all valid criticisms, um, but that in the end you don't see him making actions against those groups? Yeah, so, um, I mean, so each of those cases are separate, and each of those cases yes. have a little bit of nuance, um, you know, Correct. surrounding that. So, I mean, if you want, we can get into the specifics of each of those cases. But, like, in general, it's um, it, it's a hard place to be in because you turn on the mainstream media and you see just the gross characterization of how they try to misinterpret what Trump says and try to paint it in a certain way and basically try to rile people up and get people angry at each other. Or you see, you know, uh, a meme on Facebook that takes something out of context or tries to basically paint an image to get people to get riled up and be against each other. And then, and then you look at the actuality and it is something that is offensive, but it's not that bad or it's not as bad as these end times that people are saying. So I, I guess... Yeah, so I mean, I guess even in responding to that, I am innately rationalizing it. But I, I guess I would just say that it's e it would be easier for me to not rationalize this and not look past it and not, you know, do this if it was an honest discussion about what he was saying and the implications of it. I'm happy to talk about his comments on Dr. Ford and if that is good or bad for the social fabric of male-female relationships when it comes to sexual assault. I'm happy to talk about his comments in Charlottesville about, you know, if what he was saying was promoting white nationalists or, you know, his whole viewpoints on that. And I'm happy to, happy to do all this. But when you throw me a, just a characterization of something that tries to paint an image that is not fully true and tries to rile people up, my unfortunately, although I'm not perfect, my inner tribalist kind of kicks in and I'll, you know, innately kind of just sort of take the neutral path on that. So, yes, and well, and, and the, the fact of uh, social politics is that it is emotional. 
uh, innately people are emotional about their their own identities um, and so it does quickly become tribal um, yep. and uh, not maybe based on all the evidence uh, but that doesn't mean he's immune from being wrong he has oh, been of course yeah wrong he's, he's, and, he's, he's been wrong you've said times. that yeah right it, it's just that you think that you support you support him for his actual positions and you see him mm-hmm. carrying those out yeah, and, and it's also that like, you need to take his speaking style into account and that he speaks in allegory and these terms to where you can a lot of times misconstrue what he says as him lying or him saying something that sounds more insulting than it is when that's just the way that he talks. He's like a salesman that BSs people, you know. So, yeah, um, combined with supporting policy over his rhetoric and then combined with the other factors that I've been rambling about. So, essentially, you look past a lot of the the Trump rhetoric, the Trump personality as a means to the ends of your conservatism? Eh, not necessarily. I mean, it's not a means to the ends. I think that we could very much get to the ends without that mean. Um, it's right. just that, I mean, that's the way that, that he works. Um, he, right. he gets people excited by his speaking style. Uh, I mean, I saw him in in a rally, and I saw Paul Ryan, Mike Pence, Scott Walker, and Donald Trump. And the first four that went on were just like the most boring political speeches ever that were just sounded canned with horrible robotic jokes, and it was just not fun. Like, that was my first political rally I'd been to. And then Trump goes on, and he tells stories, and he speaks in ways that get you excited. So, he's, I mean, his, his speaking style is that double-edged sword. It's that hammer. He sometimes says things that he shouldn't say. But, I mean, he's also in the same breath just saying dumb comments to get people to laugh in, you know, in, in a rally because his rallies are sort of fun in that sense. So it's it, I guess right. it's just it, it, when going from Obama to Trump, everything Obama said was a well-crafted speech that was meant to go down in the history books and create a line and, you know, was eloquently spoken. Whereas with Trump, it's just a guy talking to you. So, of course, if you judge Trump off the Obama standard, off the politician standard, it's going to look like he said some horrible things. But if you judge him off the Trump standard, it a lot of times it's 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 just bad things that they're bad, but they're not horrible, I guess I would say. And, well, and it all depends. There are sometimes there's just the moral standard uh, of something he says is just plain bad. Uh, but you've said he's made mistakes before. Uh, but in, with politics, especially U.S. politics, we do have two options at the end of the day uh, for all intents and purposes in an election. It's to support him or the other candidate. And so if if he advances your policy goals and, yeah, he's got some bad things and the other person is way off your politics, then you might have to go with him as is uh, maybe and maybe how you've come to this decision, and maybe how other people have. Uh, I, I mean, I, I guess so. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I'm probably not being too clear um, in what I'm trying to say, and maybe I don't understand exactly what I'm trying to say. But I guess I just I hold Trump up to a different standard than you hold other politicians up to because he is just that much of a different person. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like he he has good policies and you know he, he says dumb things, but yeah, I, I guess I don't 
I didn't vote for him just because I really didn't like Clinton that bad. Or I, yeah. I don't currently support him now because I really didn't like Clinton that much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, 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 yeah, I, I guess, I guess there's maybe just a bit more nuance to, to my views than, than, than your characterization. But I think, right. I, 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 I think in general, you're probably right. And so looking forward to, uh, 2020, uh, or even 2018 midterm elections, mm-hmm. is there anything that Democrats could do to appeal to a person like you? Or is it that, uh, you are so deeply intellectually rooted in conservatism that you couldn't ever really vote for a Democrat? Or is that not true? I, I, I could vote for a Democrat. Um, I think if we had a Tulsi Gabbard up there who managed to find a way to be a bit more fiscally conservative, like, I I mean, I, I'd have to think hard about it, but I would definitely be open to voting for Tulsi. Um, I think that having the Democrats actually be the anti-war party, not just the pro-war party, you know, disguised differently, I think that would be a good start to try to get somebody, you know, like me to consider voting Democrat. Um, and then I think probably just more of a moderate tone, not even just in policy, but just in discourse. I mean, I, I think ever since Trump has taken office, the Democrats or the, the liberal side of things have really shown their true colors in that, I mean, you have Maxine Waters calling for people to confront, you know, Trump supporters and politicians in restaurants and you yell at them. Um, you have a sort of Democratic Party that isn't calling out a lot of the craziness of of the mob mentality that's sort of going on with the current state of politics. I mean, I I don't want to be parroting a partisan politics point, but to somebody like me, it really does look like a lot of these liberal leftist policies are uh, to the people are unhinged. And I I know that's just a buzzword and I hate myself for saying that, but it's the, the, like, if you want to promote, you know, larger government for some sort of industries because you think free market capitalism doesn't work in that case, then make that case. There, there's a decent case to be made for that place in healthcare. There's a decent, you know, worldview to hold that having checked capitalism is the best kind of capitalism. There's a decent worldview to hold that, you know, we promote live and let live, and that includes you holding religious right positions. We want everybody to be able to express their viewpoints. It, it's it's that the left is becoming pro-war very authoritarian in their, you know, policies, whereas the, you know, the, the, the conservative side is being a lot more, you know, like libertarian in that regard. And then just in general, their letting of mob mentality sort of take over the liberal base. I mean, you're not seeing a lot of this craziness being called out by major Democrats. You're, 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 you have a sort of mob mentality surrounding it. Um, so yeah, I guess those those three things. It would have to be a rational person who it's not even against promoting, you know, large government policies in some cases. It would just have to be a civil person who is anti-war and willing to, you know, be intellectually honest about this stuff. Right. And I mean, to maybe push back on you a bit is that uh, 8 years ago we had mob rule on the other side. We had a Tea Party movement that was in this in a similar way, quite loud, abrasive, uh, not listening to reason at many points. There was there was intellectual parts of it that were based I, in true. I personally small don't government. see the. I mean, and this could be my partisan bias. I really don't see the Tea Party as using the same tactics as the modern left. 
And when I say left, I mean sort of the fringe left, sort of the people that are out there, you know, right? I don't, of course, mean all liberal people, but... I mean, the, the, the Tea Party was boisterous in their ideology, and they were boisterous in taking, you know, control of the government back. But they were doing it in a way that was within the, you know, like, ways that we take the government back through the through voting. It was very much just like a get-out-and-vote effort. And you really weren't seeing the equivalent of people slamming on the Supreme Court doors, you know, um, People, like, you know, in, in Portland, what you're seeing with sometimes closing, like, people closing down the streets and having all these riots. I mean, I, so, um, in March, I tried to go to a Trump rally in Chicago, and we were waiting in line, and we were having a good time. All the conservatives were, you know, were listening there. We were all talking about who our favorite GOP candidates were. And then the rally got canceled, if people, anyone remembers the election, because there were people right. that were disguised as Trump supporters who had these, like, you know, political sh- liberal shirts on underneath that basically got up on stage and started yelling and basically overturned it and riots broke out in Chicago and we had to leave. Um, a lot of my favorite conservative political commentators get kicked out of college campuses all the time. You know, um, Ben Shapiro had to have 500 guards at Berkeley. Um, I really don't think there was that equivalent of the Tea Party uprising. I, I think, the and this is me trying to be honest about this, but I really think that the modern, this modern, you know, fringe movement is a lot more harmful than the fringe right movement when it comes to Bob Rule and those things. And it, it does depend, I believe, on that. I, I think the fringe left movement is made up of a younger crowd than yep. the fringe right. Um, so they're more emblazoned, uh, more passionate. Um, and, and they're on college campuses, whereas the, the Tea Party right uh, I mean, they were radical in that they were they were marching in Washington with signs of Obama as Hitler and calling to impeach him. And, and some of the same tactics as the fringe left. It's just that the fringe left has done some things on college campuses and demanded, uh, yeah, that speech is violence, which it is not. Right. Um, and they I have done that's these frustrating for you, you know, like having to have to defend those people because they unfortunately get associated with you. I, I'm a classical liberal in that all right, ideas right. need to be spoken. Uh, all ideas need to have the right to be spoken. Yeah. And you should expect the consequences from speaking, uh, but you should <laughs> always have the right to speak. Uh, so, and, so and, 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 and that's where the, that's where the Tea Party really was just, was, was implementing those ideas. They weren't, really violent about their means. They were promoting ideas that were probably not the most eloquently worded ideas, and, you know, I'm not going to defend a lot of the bad things that happened, but it is a level of difference where you're seeing the modern left movement call out hate speech as not free speech, and you're seeing, you know, that, yeah. So, it, it, to me, I, I really don't see the comparison. I really think that the modern left is a lot more harmful than that, but we, we can also, uh, you know, agree or disagree on that. No, I, I, I see what you're saying. Uh, I just, I'm, I think it's only partially influencing the party in power. I think some of it is that uh, some Democrats in power are possibly tolerating it. Some are supporting it, like a, you could mm-hmm. say a Maxine Waters of sorts. Right. Um, but there are uh, Democrats that have nothing to do with the fringe left that sure. and, well, and, and with and with the democrats you're seeing a sort of split among the quote-unquote establishment democrats and then the sort of alexandria Ocasio cortez bernie type socialist democrats 
and you know some of the tactics that kind of aren't aren't innate to those policies, but are innate to those group of people promoting those policies. So just like how there was a big split in the Republican Party that has sort of healed somewhat, you're seeing that same split in the Democratic Party. Yeah. Right. Whereas you you had the one side of uh, Obama, for instance, an intellectual who said that college students were being coddled and that college students need to be uh, allowed to hear all sides yeah, of the debate. Definitely. I mean, so I'd like I, I do see I'd like to see that I'd like to see that that Democrat back in there. But I mean, and and that's the thing is that I mean, even Hillary Clinton was on an interview a few days ago saying that. When you, you see someone civil. on the other side, you can't be civil. Like, that is Hillary Clinton. That That's not a random person in Portland, you know, who's in a riot. That is Hillary Clinton saying that. Just, just imagine for the sake of our argument that Hillary Clinton was in office, and two years go by before the midterms, and Trump says, goes on an interview saying, this is not the time to be civil. Can you imagine right. the media outrage that would happen? Like, it's right. it, it's disgusting that Clinton said that. I mean, I, I, I guess I guess now I really don't like Clinton a lot more. I was a lot more neutral on her, but, but I think she should apologize for that immediately. She, when she is not campaigning, because she's a she's a terrible campaigner. <laughs> uh, when she's not campaigning, she is usually extremely intellectual, and she has extreme attention to detail. And that's what I thought she was a great operator in government, uh, especially <laughs> like a Secretary of State. Um, she just knows uh, every relationship. She really is paying attention to the, the fine details. Uh, that comment this week did not go in line with that. Right. She was playing to the movement, this, you know, this movement that is saying that we cannot be civil because we are receiving violent speech. Uh, and I understand what, because, and I will say, First of all, that I am a privileged white male. Um, and that really does prevent me from seeing a lot of the struggles that are being fought right now. Um, and that's some of what she's saying is that it's, uh, it's a fight for some people's lives. Do you see some of that? Do you sympathize at all with that? See, I, I think, um, I, I would say when you asked me earlier about Trump's bad comments, and then I, you know, rationalize them away. I, I guess I sort of see something similar to what, you know, what you just said about Clinton, where she said something bad, and then, I mean, you probably called that out a little bit more than I did on Trump's stuff, so kudos to you, but, I mean, yeah, I can, I, I understand the liberal talking point on that, but I still think it is grossly irresponsible for somebody of her caliber to be saying that. Um, right. Well, it, it depends on what you mean by civil, but I think in all cases we need to be civil. Um, but especially there is no ever, there's never a time to be uncivil in terms of physical violence, warfare. Right. Well, see, and and going back, going back to that previous point, I think that's what that's the point I was trying to make about the even the fringe right, the Tea Party. They still had civility. They were saying, you know, thoughts. They were, they were saying ideas that maybe weren't the best ideas, but they were doing them in a good, in, a, in an appropriate medium. There was no call to violence ever. It was a let's take back this government. Let's let's, you know, get people out to vote. And the other side is, again, this the whole I mean, it's it's reaching even as high as Clinton. It's saying, you know, we need to be not civil. So I, I think, yeah, I mean, I've already said that point, but right. I think it kind of relates. Yeah, but 
So I, I think at the end of the day here to wrap this conversation up uh, is to say that you you have found a candidate that you uh, supports your policies that is putting the policies that you believe in into place, and that you're feeling sort of isolated by the the left, at least on the more social emotional front as well. And that's what's landed mm-hmm. you in into the the state where you are that. Maybe someday the, yeah. the left could be more socially accepting of, uh, or maybe on that emotional front, uh, more civil, uh, but that your your policies are going to be conservative. Yeah, and especially at this point in time in 2018, as of today, I think we're at an incredibly heightened time where I'm seeing a lot of, you know, I'm basically a lot more reactionary, anti-liberal and anti-left right now than I was in 2016, because the last two years we've sort of seen a an unhinged I don't I hate using that word but the unhinged liberal party, the liberal movement doing this. So it's not anything innate to their policies. It's just it's, it's their tactics. At this point, you know, we shouldn't reward these tactics. Even if you don't agree with the conservative platform, you should not be able to gain power by using these disgusting tactics. So I think that's what's driving a lot of my, you know, support going into the midterms, um, even more so than than the policy, I guess. And, you know, that's even just been more of a development over the last few months, because it, it, I mean, the the, globe, the temperature of relations in the U.S. has just gone up like fivefold in the last six months. It's it's really kind of a scary time. Yes, and people uh, are afraid to speak to one another and they're. Uh, jumping to conclusions about what labels mean. And I think the whole purpose of this conversation and more to come is to break down what labels mean and to look beyond what a person says when they say who they voted for, because there is much more nuance. Uh, You know, many people might have intellectual reasons for everything, and some people may not, uh, but you can't judge that based on a single label or who they voted for. Uh, so thank you yeah, for and, coming on. And David. Yeah. Thank you uh, for having me. It's been, it's been a pleasure to have you. I definitely hope to have you more on more episodes in the future, maybe to discuss certain issues, something sure. like that. But no, right. thank you for being uh, the first in a series of understanding the Trump voter. Yep. Thanks, Tim. Uh, so thank you. This has been Axe View.